electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Let's get digital, digital. Well, that's right. Not physical, as in brick and mortar, but digital, as in e-commerce, the Internet, digitization, because digital is no longer the future. It's now. At this point, it's a question of survival. Your business either goes digital, digital, or it goes down the drain. That's why I keep coming back to this theme, including on sedate days like today, where the Dow inched 86 points, the S&P dipped 0.06%, and the NASDAQ advanced 0.23%, with or without the pandemic. And, of course, the pandemic is going to be on everybody's minds, particularly because I thought that maybe we'd have more doses faster than we're not going to. We have to start talking about some other things that can make some fabulous long-term winners. Some of this stuff is so obvious it's in your face, or at least in your hands. I mean, look, we had cell phones, right? Uh, Then we got smartphones. And now those smartphones are miniature personal computers. Something like Apple's tough to miss, right? Because iPhones are everywhere and demand is off the charts. Same goes for the watch, for the earbuds. Yeah, we all see that. That's the technology that's in our faces. That's the purloined letter. But when I tell you business needs to go digital or go broke, I'm not talking about gadgets or anything else in the consumer side of things. No, today's digitizers are the companies that help other firms transcend their brick-and-mortar routes by going online. They have no choice but to get digital because that's where the customers are. If you follow the customer, well, you're going to understand why Salesforce, which built a gigantic business by helping clients harness the power of the cloud, decided to shell out $27.7 billion for Slack technologies in a deal that was widely criticized by people who, frankly, I don't think read the conference calls of either. They would have known that Slack had a fantastic quarter, as did Salesforce. I think it was a brilliant move. 
Slack's got great business collaboration software, but they don't have the financial wherewithal to go head-to-head against Microsoft forever, right? Microsoft Teams is embedded everywhere. Salesforce has the firepower, though, and Slack fits right in with their cloud platform. Here's what the skeptics don't understand. Salesforce.com is going to be a $200 billion Dow Jones colossus under the leadership of Mark Benioff. But thanks to the law of large numbers and the fact that, geez, you know, you got to keep scaling, it's very difficult for Mark to go from $200 billion to the $500 billion that I think that company can go, at least not all organically. Why? Because to most people, Salesforce is invisible. Unless you're a data scientist or you work in sales, you don't interact with their software. That's why Mark needs a visible platform, something everyone can see and something everyone can buy. Don't get me wrong. Salesforce works miracles. When we brought them into the street.com, which we sold last year, we saw a 30% uptick, 30% in uptick in sales almost immediately. But I saw that 30% number because I was an executive. The rank and file, they, they didn't see Salesforce, but they did see Slack. Everyone sees Slack. Now, the two of them are one, and that's what matters. No, the deal's not closed, but you know exactly what I mean. Of course, Salesforce isn't the only tech company that has this problem when it comes to exposure for institutional and individual investors. The digitizers that are transforming the economy are mostly invisible to everybody unless you personally have to use their software for work. For the most part, you don't see them. So if you are interested in stocks like you and I are, you tend not to own them. Instead, you go with the companies that take advantage of digitization. That's a more accessible pattern, although a lot of times it's less lucrative. But here's... Here, that's how you really do miss out on some great stories, of which one we're going to talk about tonight. And one of them is it's called Snowflake. It's probably one of the least visible companies out there, even though its stock is one of the best performers. Snowflake's in the cloud-based data warehousing business. I know, hard to understand. You need to get the For Dummies book. It's actually available on the website. But it went public with a bang in September, and since then it's fallen off the radar for many people. The company is run by a legendary legendary uh, technical digital expert, Frank Slootman. He is an old software hand who used to run ServiceNow. We liked that stock when it was very, very small, and that was because of Slootman. Snowflake reported some spectacular numbers last night, more than that when we speak to him later. He's one of the most self-effacing, no-nonsense CEOs we've ever had on the show. He's the one who told me that everybody needs to go digital because data is now the beating heart of the modern enterprise. Data is how we parse understand, and act on the world. So Snowflake suddenly become essential because its data warehousing platform federates all this information from all sorts of sources, allowing executives to make the right decision almost immediately. Google and Facebook pioneered this kind of analytics-driven thinking a long time ago. It's called programmatic, but Snowflake does it for everybody. They often team up with Salesforce to help their clients capitalize on the billions of clicks that allow their software to spot, spot patterns, maybe who to figure out, who to call, who might be a good target, who could be the next customer. In the parlance of the Queen's Gambit, when you hire Snowflake, you're playing chess. The other guys, they're playing checkers. Of course, even if Snowflake's putting up borderline perfect numbers, you still have to figure out what to pay for perfection. Stock's certainly expensive by any conventional metric, care to name, but tech is not like the rest of the market. When you've got a fast-growing tech stock like Snowflake, or Tesla for that matter, the buyers don't play by the rules. There's no rule book, as we said the other day when I was on Scott Wapner's show. Yeah, see, they tend to... They look at something like Snowflake and recognize that data's become the lifeblood of commerce, so they're willing to pay up for it, including, by the way, Berkshire Hathaway, which is the largest investor. But remember, this is a position that is not owned by Warren Buffett. That's a very big company now. Which brings me to the next invisible winner. In a world where data is treasured, companies need to protect it, hence the strength in the cybersecurity stocks overnight. These are more companies that you don't see, but the buyers understand, so they keep bidding them up. Okta. 
Zscaler, CrowdStrike, all of which exploded higher than the wake of some magnificent numbers. But if these companies are so invisible, how do we even find out about them? Simple. You look at the winners in each industry and see how they're spending their money. Why is Chipotle the highest valued restaurant chain? Because it's the most digital with a terrific online ordering system in Chipotle that can take handle, handle takeout. It's just fantastically. They're now making as much money per store as they were before COVID when they were jam-packed with customers. Next week, Starbucks has its biennial extravaganza. And they'll tell you all about a tech revolution that will break the, the throughput bottlenecks. You think it's a coincidence that Starbucks brought in uh, Kevin Johnson from Juniper Networks as its CEO? They brought in a technologist, not a coffee guy, for a reason. Somebody who knows more about JavaScript than Java beans. Because these stocks are more obvious, a lot of people end up owning the Chipotles and Starbuckses, and that's fantastic. You know I like people owning winning stocks, but they do it rather than owning some of these tech plays because they don't understand them, and that's fine, too. Uh, but who else uses these tech plays? Well, we had PVH on last night, a uh, parent of Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. As CEO Manny Trico explained, they pivoted hard to digital, and it saved the business. Well, pivoting hard to digital is talking about the companies that we talk about in tech. And it's the strength behind Ralph Lauren. It's another big winner today. It's why I think Tapestry, the artist formerly known as Coach, is worth buying. It's why I like the stock of Williams-Sonoma so much, and it's been a terrific winner. It's why I think that Levi Strauss is going to do well. But, man, I like the tech companies that make the pivot to digital possible even more. Don't stop at the visible winners. Buy one or two of the invisible players that help them win behind the scenes. Yes, the Octas, the CrowdStrikes, the Z-Scalers, the Snowflakes, all of which just reported last night, or Salesforce the day before, or even DocuSign this very evening. These are higher-risk, higher-reward situations. So when one of them does uh, not deliver, like Splunk just did last night, you have a stock that could lose 23.25% in a single session. Yeah, they're more dangerous. More risk, more reward. Bottom line, you can own the companies that have embraced digitization in order to survive. But don't forget about the tech outfits that make digitization possible in the first place, like a sales force. Ideally, you own some of these of both groups because we believe in diversification. And we know that when tech disappoints, the floor is a lot lower than the ceiling. Antonio in Nebraska, please. Antonio. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? Man, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the stock that uh, that I've been seeing lately has been on fire for the past year, and uh, currently uh, Square. Yeah, Square. Seeing, uh, Square's had a big run. There's two. You know, remember, Square is uh, a Jack Dorsey company. Uh, what Square is, is is really a a great equalizer. It helps the uh, retail or small business be able with a little Square uh, uh, thing. But what it really is, it's got. Um, it's got cash, it's square cash, and what people like is it's really kind of taking the place of banks. And you know what? It's about time that someone gave banks a run for the money, and Square's doing that. How about Logan in New York, please? Logan. Booyah, Jim. Big Boo- fan of the show. Thank you. Wanted to get your take on, on McDonald's. I own some shares right now. Um, you know, I know in 2021 they're coming out with the plant-based products and innovating some of the drive through Want to know if you think it's going to have a breakout performance? Uh, you know, I should buy some more or just hold right now? Well, I'll tell you, the other day there was a, a, an analyst came out and said that the estimates are too high. The stock's been hanging around 211. I think it underestimates how weak the dollar's gotten, which is going to help their international business. I'm not going to say that no one ever went wrong buying McDonald's because there was a stretch that wasn't so good. But I think you'll be fine in McDonald's. I do prefer Wendy's and I do prefer Chipotle. All right. Oh, 
The future belongs to digital. Get digital. And the future is now. Oh, man, money tonight. Feel that chill in the air? The snowman himself is here. And he's walking us through Snowflake's first quarter as a public company. Yes, very rich. Overvalued? Eye of the beholder. Don't miss my exclusive with the huge big data winner. Then I'm back in the driver's seat for your know your electric vehicle segment. And I'm highlighting one of the most recent electric SPAC stories. And I think you should like it. And yes, has COVID got you spending more time outside? I've got an exclusive with the CEO of deck maker ASIC to find out if you should be decking the halls with this one. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Last night, Snowflake reported its first quarter since the fast-growing data warehousing company came public. By the way, uh, it's the fastest-growing company I follow. Remember, this was the biggest software IPO in history, and the stock doubled right out of the gate, with the darn thing instantly trading at more than 100 times sales. Since then, the bears have been waiting for their moment to pounce, and for a minute last night, it looked like that Molly was about to commence. Even though Snowflake reported a nice top and bottom line beat, 119% revenue growth, I told you, the fastest grower, management's limited guidance for the next quarter was uh, merely in line. That sent the stock tumbling more than 30 bucks in an after-hours trading because they didn't really read the conference call. They didn't understand what inline really meant for a company that doesn't do the kind of bogus accounting I'm sick of. Then this morning, the analysts weighed in with a more positive tone after understanding the way Snowflake keeps its books. And the stock came roaring back, hit a new high, closing up 16%. So what the heck's going on here? More importantly, could this thing even have more upside? Let's go right to the source with Frank Slootman, the bankable chairman CEO of Snowflake. Get a better sense of the quarter. Mr. Slootman, welcome back to Man Buddy. Yeah, good to be back, Jim. Okay, so Frank, you've explained to me many times and in different guys in ServiceNow that what matters is data. That data is becoming the beating heart 
of the modern enterprise, but most people have no idea how to profit from it. They think it's simple, but it's not. What does Snowflake do to help us explain the beating heart? You know, um, you've, you've heard the phrase digital transformation probably uh, a million times, but what that really means to us uh, is where uh, digital processes are driving outcomes uh, for enterprises. So they're, they're, it's not just a cog in the wheel, a piece of infrastructure that is very far removed from, from what the business really does, the drive train of the business, right? So when you take CNBC's parent uh, company, NBC Universal, you know, big media streaming uh, company, and they use Snowflake uh, to understand data patterns so they can both describe and then predict, um, you know, how people buy, when they buy, uh, and so on. So data is really about understanding uh, people's behavior and the ability uh, to predict it. When you drive processes 100%, you know, digital, there's no people involved in the process. So it massively scales. It's incredibly efficient and it's incredibly precise. Now, I know uh, I have to tell people, if you want to own this stock, you must go. There's a guidebook. It's called Cloud Data Platforms for Dummies. It's, it's 68 pages. It is not a hard read. But, Frank, what it tells me basically is that there are all these people right now, data scientists. They cost a fortune. And that they are people who you probably don't even understand. And they tell you what to do, but they can't do it fast. And they don't know how to make your business do better. You're Snowflake in a very reasonable price range because you have to pay, you pay for what you get. Solves the problem and maybe makes it so all these expensive people aren't needed. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've done is, I mean, we, we've scaled this down from the largest data states in the world to the smallest, um, and it uses a uh, you know what we call an elastic utility model, where you don't have to sign up and buy anything; you just start using it, and you just get invoiced for for what you consume. Uh, so it, it massively expands the marketplace just because of that. Uh, we've also made the platform much more approachable for moderately skilled people. It doesn't take rocket scientists to get going with uh, with Snowflake. That's one of the big attractions about the platform. Now, one of the things that you uh, point out in the conference call and your documents is you have a great relationship with Salesforce. Now, uh, Mark Benioff, I know, big shareholder. By the way, Warren Buffett, uh, Berkshire, big shareholder. So you've got growth and value buying your stock. But what they see is a company that is kind of, let's call it indispensable in the modern world, that some companies, yes, like Google and Facebook, they may have these complicated algorithms. They can do that. But for the most part, most companies can't even afford to do themselves what you do for a fraction of what they could do it for. And that seems to be a value proposition that a, a Berkshire might like and a B- B- Benioff might like. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, it's, it's, you know, we used to uh, run businesses, you know, through what I would call anecdotal observation, just by, you know, consuming the news feed, having meetings, having telephone conversations, whatever it is. And we kind of form, you know, our, the picture of reality as we go along through our day. That's all changing. I mean, by, by the way, the, the pandemic has really shown that a lack of data creates mass confusion in society. So what data is becoming is really the way to parse, to understand, and to act on the realities as they are unfolding. And we just can't go back to, uh, to just rely on anecdotal observation because it's, it's imprecise and it's often plain wrong, right? So, so da- there's no substitute for, for really running digital and being completely data-driven. There's a lot of enterprises that are, that are already data that are really conceived in that model. But of course, you know, most of the, of the institutions out there, you know, they have to come from, from farther behind and really catch up. 
Right. Like, uh, Comcast, is, as Frank mentioned, or many retailers need this, but all sorts of industries. There's a, an instance where Devin, uh, the oil company, uses you. But, Frank, now it's my job to, to talk stock price, not yours. But you have to understand that people will say, I mean, a lot of wise guys came to me and said, you know, you like this guy, Slubin. You like this Snowflake. Do you have any idea how expensive it is? I like to think of it as what you could do with Snowflake as opposed to a static look. I mean, when you try to tell people what Snowflake does, you're talking about something that's a multi-year thing. You're not talking about next quarter. You know, the, the, the thing to understand is that, you know, data has been bottled up. Um, enterprises have not, since the beginning of computing, they've not been able to mobilize their data. And that's because the technology was expensive. It was constrained. It was impaired. So people have really, really used a tiny, tiny little fraction of what the potential you know, of data really is. The reason that it, that is changing now is a because of the public cloud because we have massive scale on data on computational capabilities and the combination with a software architecture like snowflake completely unleashes enterprises to take advantage of it so they're going after their backlogs with a vengeance and that's why you see the growth the high revenue the net revenue retention rates and so on because it's a completely variable consumption paradigm there's really no limit to how much you can consume other than you know based on budget and appetite I know I've been running short, but the last thing I wanted to say is when you explain very well that you have customers right now that you can't see because that's not the way you do your model. When somebody uses it, they pay. So there's entirely possible that overseeing is the 160% increase from your existing. We don't even know what's in the pipe because that's not the way you build the company. So those who look at it as a snapshot and say, oh, it's 100 times sales, they could end up being very wrong 18 months from now. Yeah, that, that's possible because we're in a very, very fluid uh, environment. You know, people look at markets, uh, you know, in arrears. Uh, that's, that's not going to be very instructive because markets are changing because of what the technology is enabling, and we're, we're seeing it every day. And uh, our spend, if you will, uh, you know, as a percentage of what, what, what people are spending money on is just growing in leaps and bounds, and it's much larger than what people have historically thought of. So they're getting used to these to these discrepancies. Like, wow, you know, uh, last year we spent fifty thousand, and this year we're spending a million, and we're we're seeing there's no end in sight. But the business is driving, and they're saying, no, we need to do this, and we have a business case uh, for it. So the importance of data and data services of this sort is just changing in front of people's eyes right now. Right now, people are looking at the uh, ship and and. Uh Directing it by the wake, which is not how Frank likes to do it. Frank Slubin, Chairman and CEO of Snowflake. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Always great to see you. You do. You bet, Jim. Thanks. Right. Guys, look, if you really want oxygenated growth run by someone who really knows what they're doing, you can have a position in Snowflake. Net money's back in. Coming up, spending more time at the house these days? Homeowners may be doing a little more remodeling. Can this stock renovate your portfolio? Kramer sits down with the CEO when Mad Money returns. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching 
searching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week has been a real roller coaster for the EV stocks. After roaring for most of November, practically the whole group melted down earlier this week before finally rebounding today. That's why we're taking this moment to revisit some of the auto plays that have come public lately through reverse mergers with, yes, special purpose acquisition companies. We got to cover these. Wall Street's not covering, but on Mad Money, we're going to cover them for you. Yesterday, we highlighted Luminar, which makes LiDAR systems for self-driving cars. The day for that, we covered ChargePoint. That's the charging station play. Tonight, we need to talk about the most recent electric SPAC story. A couple of weeks ago, we found out that CIIG Merger Corp is joining forces with Arrival. That's a British company that's developing electric vans and buses in a deal that values the combined entity at $5.4 billion. It's very big. It's the largest paper valuation we've seen from one of these transactions, but it might be justified. Right now, CIIG Merger is the stock, but once the reverse merger closes, a rival gets a public listing, along with about $660 million in cash, and the new entity will be trading under the symbol ARVL. Initially, the market lapped this one up, and it caused tremendous positive pin action in the other speculative electric vehicle names. Why not? I mean, that's what's been happening with this whole group. CIIG was trading at $10.75 for the arrival deal. Just a week later, it closed at 27 bucks, But that is where it peaked. Since Thanksgiving, the stock has been obliterated. It's plunged back, back to 21, and that's after a sizable nearly 10% bounce today. So you got to ask, is it safe to dip your toe in the water after the sell-off, or, or do we need to be prepared for more carnage? First, you need to understand what's so special about Arrival, that it could get a $5 billion valuation right out of the gate, even though it doesn't have any sales yet, let alone earnings. We're still in the early innings of this story, but it's much more compelling than some of these other small-time electric vehicle startups that people have been bidding up to the sky. See, Arrival already has $1.2 billion, that's B, in orders for its first products, and they're scheduled to go into production sometime in the fourth quarter of next year. This is not like some pie-in-the-sky hydrogen fuel cell play where you need to wait three or four years for the technology to pay off. Assuming nothing goes wrong, they'll be manufacturing these buses within 12 months. That's not even the most exciting part, though. What really sets a rival apart uh, is that they're trying to reinvent the whole manufacturing process. They've got a new means of production that they call the micro factory, and it could be a game changer, even as it sounds more Hollywood than Silicon Valley. And David Faber and I were actually joking about the micro factory because it sounded so fanciful. But over a century ago, think about this. Henry Ford revolutionized the fledgling auto industry by embracing the assembly line in mass production. Since then, the details have changed. Uh, We use more capital equipment and fewer workers. But the broad strokes are the same. Sprawling factories that crank out tons and tons of vehicles. Arrival's turning that approach on its head with smaller, less capital-intensive factories that use cell-based assembly methods to lower the cost of electric vehicles. 
The idea here is that the company can set up a new micro factory anywhere in the world within six months, and each micro factory can produce any vehicle from a rival's portfolio. In theory, they could put a micro factory in every major market, then customize their buses by region while saving a fortune on shipping costs. I like this. It's not all. Where most auto companies rely on third-party component makers, a rival shooting for vertical integration. They make their own parts in-house. They make their own manufacturing equipment. The vans and buses have a modular design. To, to, to their, they're easy to put together. And the whole thing's set up to be built by robots. If it works, a rival should be able to make electric vans and buses for the same cost as the regular old fossil fuel versions, meaning much cheaper than any other electric competitors. So they're revolutionizing the entire auto industry. And they own a ton of intellectual property. They make all their own components. They'll be cost competitive with gasoline and diesel. And that's why a rival got that $5 billion valuation from from the get-go. If you think that sounds too good to be true, I say take a look at a rival's investors, Hyundai and Kia. Yes, both own a big piece of this thing. They know a little bit about making cars and trucks in volume and scale. United Parcel has a stake, too. And they've got some experience managing supply chains. In fact, earlier this year, UPS committed to buying 10,000 electric vans from a rival with an option to order even more. That seems pretty legitimate to me. Now, while a rival says they'll be able to start making buses first, the real money's in vans. Shipping's essential in a world where e-commerce keeps taking more and more market shares. I talk about every night here. By 2024, management projects they'll have $14 billion in revenue, up from a billion in 2022, with two-thirds of that coming from vans. Thanks to the company's micro-factory model, they can turn a profit even at relatively low volume, so opposite of those giant River Rouge plants. And this plan they have is to be cash flow positive in two years. Well, okay, 2023. These long-term forecasts are always hazy. There's a reason that companies that come public the normal way through IPOs simply aren't allowed to give guidance. However, given that Arrival already has $1.2 billion in orders, the idea of a billion dollars in revenue in 2022, I, I don't know, that seems pretty reasonable to me. It's a spectacular growth over the following two years that I guess is sometimes harder to swallow. But if Arrival's projections are anywhere close to correct, this would be a must-own stock for all growth investors. Putting it all together, there's a lot to like here. The whole microfactory concept could revolutionize manufacturing, not just the auto industry, assuming it works as intended. I also like the vehicles. They look like they look pretty sleek. Again, if they can make an electric van or truck with a lower cost of ownership than the fossil fuel-powered alternatives, that's a whole new ball game. I think it makes a ton of sense that Arrival starting with commercial markets rather than trying to, say, fight with Tesla for a piece of the consumer. Electric fans are low-hanging fruit for companies that want to get credit for protecting the environment. And these days, that's a lot of them. They want to meet all these ESG targets that are very aggressive. Meanwhile, when you see Hyundai and Kia putting their money on the line in something like this, that's very encouraging. When you see UPS ordering thousands of vans, well, that'll make a terrific case study. And we know UPS is serious about going green. Even better, Arrival's a British company with a distinctly European vibe. That's a big deal because Europe is way ahead of the United States when it comes to enthusiasm for electric vehicles and mass transit in general. Finally, let's talk valuation. And this is what I think is going to have a lot of people upset and it's going to take a leap of faith, except for for the younger people who don't even want to listen to what I'm about to say. Arrivals merging with CIIG. Okay, that's the CIIG merger. And if the company can come anywhere close to meeting its projections over the next few years, the valuation actually seems pretty reasonable. With CIIG stock trading at 21 and change, that translates into about 12.4 billion valuation 
for the combined company. Given that Arrival's talking about doing $5 billion in sales for 2023, well, that would mean a stock selling for 2.4 times sales in the out years. Nothing crazy about that at all, as long as they hit their targets. Of course, that does require a huge leap of faith. I think there's more reason to believe in Arrival than most of the other electric SPAC plays. But at the end of the day, this is still an early stage company. It's still speculation, okay? A lot of things could go wrong. I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be disappointed if the stock suddenly goes down $10 in a day because you're thinking about longer term here, the bottom line. As much as I like this story, I think you can be patient. Arrival won't even merge with CIG until sometime in the first quarter of next year. And you almost always get a better entry point with these SPAC deals when you wait for the stocks to come in. That's why I'm saying it's speculative and you can get a big drop here. But given how much this one's already pulled back this week, I'm giving my blessing to start picking at it tomorrow. Then I want you to wait for maybe a better pitch. If it comes down below 1750, you can buy it hand over fist because this one has the best claim to be the son of Tesla or daughter to break the tyranny of that awful cliche. Michael in Florida. Michael. Hey, Jim. Big Booyah from Florida. Yes. What's up? Hey, what are your thoughts on NEE, Next Era Energy? Oh, I like that. It's a terrific growth utility. I like it very much. I've liked it for ages. I think it's absolutely excellent. I know the yield isn't that high, but it doesn't matter because it's got terrific growth. And I like the combination. Uh, Let's go to Clark in Florida. Clark. Hey, Jim. How you doing today? I am good. How about you? Fantastic, thanks. Beautiful down here in Florida. Listen, Jim, real quickly, Fuel Cell. I was uh, wondering what your thoughts are on that company, being that they just recently uh, issued some more shares. Yeah, I'm cooling. You know, here's what I've been saying. I'm not cooling on the technology. I'm cooling on the stocks. And that's because they've had such big runs and they're issuing a lot of stock and there's been so much insider selling. And I don't want you to take the other side of a ton of insider selling. All right, when it comes to the most recent electric SPAC story, Arrival, I like it. Buy some and then be patient. There's much more Mad Money Head. Is it time to deck out your portfolio with Azek after earnings? I'm sitting down with the CEO. Then don't be lulled into thinking that bankruptcies are low. I'm going to tell you what I'm really seeing. Lawyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Look, I, I tell you this all the time. The stock market makes a ton of mistakes every day, especially when it's digesting earnings. And that can make for some baffling action. Take ASIC, which makes composite buildings products that are cheaper, easier to maintain than traditional materials like wood. They're the number two maker of faux wood decking behind Kramer Fave Trex, but they are a higher-end player. Now, ASIC came public with a bang in June, but after an initial run from 22 to 42, stock has stalled over the past few months, even though we're in the middle of a housing boom. Which brings me to this morning when ASIC reported a seemingly pretty terrific quarter. Me, they delivered a five cent earnings beat off 24 cent basis, much higher than expected sales, up 22 percent year over year. Even better, management's forecast for both the next quarter and the next year came in well above what Wall Street was looking for. I like this. And what happened? Well, the stock actually goes down. Darn thing fell more than two percent. It's not like it had a run in the quarter. So what's going on here? Let's take a closer look with Jesse Singh. He's the president and CEO of Azek Company to get a better picture of the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Singh, welcome back to Man Money. Well, it's great to be here, Jim, and, and thanks for, uh, for having us. 
All right, so Jesse, I'm going over the quarter, and what I look for are when margins are expanding, when business is better, and when you have so much demand that you actually have to build more plants. I'm checking every box when it comes to ASIC. Well, yeah, certainly we had a, uh, you know, a really strong quarter, and it ended a very strong year where we had over 13% growth. Really good EBITDA, uh, you know, margin growth, and we expanded our EBITDA margins by 110 basis points. So it capped off a really strong year, but uh, absolutely, we, we felt really good about the quarter. Okay, so I want people to understand where you are, uh, and I'm going to be personal for a second. And it didn't, wasn't, and you know, I did this without telling you because I know Jesse for a long time. But when my contractor Michael Haley came to me, I said, "Well, how about Trek? How about Azek?" Said Azek is the one that you get when you have when it go up scale. When you want to have a beautiful people say, "Oh, that's Azek." Is tell people, and you know, I like the guys from Trek, and you're never going. I know you're not going to knock anybody, but where you fit in terms of the remodel market that we like so much on Mad Money? Yeah, well, well, first, on the remodel market, I mean, we do see some really terrific trends, right? You, you, you see the, the formation of, of new households, and that really uh, drives demand. When you take a look at our product portfolio, we play in two key spaces. We play in decking, uh, where we have two unique technologies, and that allows us to get better aesthetics, uh, cooler decking, and it allows us to replace more types of wood, um, including ePay. But we also play in the exteriors market, which is a specialty products that really enhance the beauty on the outside of a house and is also involved in wood replacement. So, you know, we have the benefit of playing in multiple technologies, which gives us multiple opportunities to drive growth. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, if you didn't know, you would think that my house is wood, okay? You would just never know. So let me ask you, why are we still making things with wood when I've had to now replace my deck twice and decided enough already? Well, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think first and foremost, it's awareness, uh, right? People, you know, uh, 10 years back, if you wanted to replace a, a wood deck or even some trim, you might have an inferior product and your contractor may have used a product that didn't quite look right. We've progressed so much right now that we have fantastic looking products that you can't tell uh, you know, are not mahogany or not um, ePay. So, you know, first and foremost, it's about education and getting the word out there. And 80% of the market right now is still wood. And, and so as you look at ourselves and, and frankly, our competitor, we have a tremendous opportunity to really um, uh, expand and, and get after that 80% of the market. We're only playing in 20% of the market. And I think that a lot of younger people, Jesse, you and I both know them, they're going to be more interested in of all the things we just said. They're going to be interested in th- Things like your berry plastic steel. They're going to be interested in where you get your raw materials. Yeah, our single, our single largest raw material right now is recycled plastics. 54% of everything we extrude is made out of uh, recycled plastics. We are a key part of the circular economy. And by doing that, we're able to use a tremendous amount of material in making our products. So last year, we used 300 million pounds of recycled material. This year, we used 400 million pounds. And what it's allowing other companies to do is use us as an outlet for their scrap. And we're preventing that product from going into landfills. And it's giving us a cost advantage as we use that product as opposed to virgin product. Now, you were 44 percent recycled in 2019, 54 percent you would do in 2020. Can this keep going up? 
Well, certainly we see uh, a bigger and bigger opportunity to expand our percentage of recycled materials used. We bought a, uh, a PVC recycler earlier this year, and that really sets us up to be the leader in PVC recycling, which is a highly, it's highly unusual to recycle PVC. So we see a tremendous runway ahead of us to continue to use recycled materials and drive a great sustainability story and make the planet better. And we've been uh, chronicling this move out of the cities to the suburbs, to the country. Where do you think we are in the process if we don't get a vaccine until mid to late 2021? Well, I, I think the movement, first, if you look at the data, uh, the movement has been occurring and occurred pre-COVID, right, where people right. are moving into smaller cities, moving into suburbs, and moving into more vacation-oriented homes. So that trend was strong coming into COVID. You see that trend continue with housing starts up. Um, and what that, uh, what that really drives is a longer cycle remodeling uh, setup. So whatever's happening now in housing has a lag effect on remodeling. And, and so we see a long tail to what's happening in housing now to the remodeling market. All right, that's excellent, because that's exactly why I would tell people that they must buy the stock. Particularly younger people want to try to do the right thing with their portfolio. Jesse Singh, president and CEO of ASIC. Good to see you, sir. Great to be on. Thanks All again, right, Thank you. May have money to be back after the break. It is time to have the light round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead. Over the lightning round. Let's start with Jonathan in New York. Jonathan. Booyah, Jim, from your own home state. My question is about a company that's reinventing itself. Blackberry. You know, it's been reinventing itself for so long that I've forgotten about how it's been reinventing. It's, each time it's a different guys. All I can tell you is during this whole way, had you just bought Apple, how much better would you have done? So I'm suggesting sell Blackberry and buy Apple. I need to go to Mark in Wisconsin. Mark. Jim, I've got a stock for you in the EV sector. Uh, the name of the company is Blink, ticker BLNK. I was it's charging. Think charging. You know, we just did a charge point the other day. There's so many of these. We're going to have to cover every single one of them. But I've got to tell you, I would say that there are too many of them. And you got to be very, very careful. Although you got one tonight that we do think represents some value. I need to go to Mark in Florida, please. Mark. Hi, Jim. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I owe you a great deal of thanks for all the insight you've generously shared over the years and for your excellent recommendation of Palantir Technologies, which I bought the day it came public and sold two days ago for 156% profit. Well, you know, what happened with Palantir is that, as I saw with Spotify and I saw with Google, when they do these kinds, and also with Slack, by the way, not that successful until the other day, they do these kinds of deals where they just throw the stock out there. You don't get that kind of roadshow fanfare, and the stocks tend to be undervalued. At this point, you're right. You took the double and you went on, and I'm not afraid of that. But I do think that when you see these, these actually the, just the throwout ones, no IPO, uh, although I'm trying to figure out the SPACs, it, you got to buy them. And Palantir was a good example of that. Let's go to Steve in Texas, please. Steve. Booyah from beautiful Possum Kingdom Lake, Texas, Jim. Uh, I'm calling you about a stock that is used by boomers to millennials to high school students and and that stock, as you may have probably guessed, is PayPal. Yeah, PayPal works. What can I say? I left, you know, 
Caught the double for ActionAlertsPlus.com and moved on. Then it doubled again. And I got to tell you, that's because Dan Schulman understands how people worldwide want to bank. It's the bank of the future. We talk about Square, PayPal, similar, PayPal, bigger base. I think the stock can go higher still. James in Indiana. James. Booyah, Dr. Kramer. Love your show. Read your book. All right. What's going on? Yeah, I'd like to take on two, and I wish you happy holidays. Oh, same to you. Same to you. Which one was it? Chewy. Uh, you know what? This is Chewy's like Wayfair. It's really hard to value uh, unless you use them and have the customer service, and they send you a picture of your dog that passed away. And uh, I am I'm partial to Chewy because I think it's just a terrific way to get pet food. Uh, but the stock has run up a lot, and it's a little too expensive for me at these points. Let's go to Phil in Illinois. Phil. Oh yeah, Jim. Oh, yeah, package, Viva Systems. Uh. People didn't like the quarter yesterday, and, and that causes me to think what we ought to do is just bring Viva on rather than make a snap judgment because it's been such an unbelievable performer over the years. I'm not willing to abandon ship. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. All right, let's figure this out together. We've got record COVID hospitalizations, got record deaths. City's going back into lockdown. L.A. just closes bars and restaurants. So why aren't there more bankruptcies? We just got the November bankruptcy figures, and they're at a 14-year low. Yep, we just had 34,440 bankruptcy filings last month. Those are Chapter 13 filings, personal bankruptcy. And they're down 45% year-to-date, according to the Wall Street Journal. As for commercial bankruptcies, new Chapter 11 filings, remember, they were up 40% from last year. Not great, but much better than you might have feared, given all the businesses that can't really make money with the pandemic out of control. There's just one problem. I think some of these figures could be a mirage. The personal bankruptcy numbers look good because there's been a moratorium on evictions through January 1st, when 19 million people lose the protection and potentially get kicked out onto the streets. It's easy to pay your other bills when you can stay in your apartment rent-free. Commercial renters don't have the same luxury, which is why the commercial numbers look so much uglier. Although, again, they're better than you'd think right in this environment. So many retailers and restaurants are hanging on by the skin of their teeth, desperately struggling to cover their bills. Electric, heating, insurance, rent, workers' comp. With COVID spiraling out of control again, they're facing a situation where they have the same cost, but little no revenue, unless they get bailed out by another stimulus package. Worse than that is what happens when the freeze on evictions ends next month. According to Princeton University, in an average year, we get 3.6 million eviction cases that lead to 1.5 million actual evictions. Given that we have 7% unemployment and a huge backlog of people who can't pay the rent, you have to believe we'll see a massive rush of eviction notices that's much higher than average. That'll change the picture. I've spent a lot of time telling you we need to protect small business by giving them business interruption insurance. Now we're headed for a process where individuals who can't pay the rent will have to file for bankruptcy. And that means more landlords filing for bankruptcy, which in turn could be a big problem for the banks. 
their bottom lines might take a major hit. More important, for eight months, our economy's gotten a boost because people in financial trouble could still have spending money by missing the rent. Once they have to cover that expense again, that means less business for retail. That's why it's so essential that we get this darn stimulus bill. Today, the Democratic leadership endorsed the bipartisan plan for a scaled-back relief package, although the Republican leadership is still not on board. I really hope Mitch McConnell changes his mind. Although, if we get a good employment number tomorrow, I'm sure it's going to be a tough sell for him. Now, look, it's not just the renters, banks, and retailers that will suffer when we start enforcing evictions again. The real estate investment trusts that own properties in the cities, they could be in big trouble, too. You should expect still one more exodus from the cities, where renters are concentrated to the suburbs, where housing is cheaper. It's absolutely insane that our government might let the economy slam headfirst into a brick wall when we are so close to getting a vaccine. When it comes to American politics, though, you can never be too cynical. Listen, the eviction moratorium has given our economy a massive boost, but it ends December 31, which sets us up for some very tough January uh, comparisons unless Congress gets sacked together. And so don't be lulled into a false sense of security by these ridiculously low bankruptcy numbers. The reality is that millions of Americans can't pay their rent. They can't put food on the table. Come January, they're going to get slammed by eviction notices, and the pain will reverberate throughout the entire economy. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.